intuitive sense that the group represented the principle of the flesh was correct. The group was concerned with all those things that could never emerge from words, sweat and tears and cries of joy or pain. If one probed deeper still, it was concerned with the blood that words could never cause to flow. For though verbal expression may convey pleasure or grief, it cannot convey shared pain. Though pleasure may be readily fired by ideas, only bodies placed under the same circumstances can experience a common suffering. Only through the group, I realized, through sharing the suffering of the group, could the body reach that height of existence that the individual alone could never attain. And for the body to reach that level, at which the divine might be glimpsed, a dissolution of the individuality was necessary. There is dignity in serenity, it says. There is dignity too in clenched teeth and flashing eyes. Spiritually, I wanted to revive some samurai spirits through it. Because I don't want to revive Halakiri itself, but uh, through the vision of such a of Halakiri, I wanted to inspire and stimulate younger people. I wanted to revive some old traditional sense of honor or sense of very strong responsibility and uh, such a sense of death in honor. Harakiri is a very positive, very uh, proud way of death. It is not, I think it is very different from the Western concept of suicide. Western concept of suicide is always defeat itself, mostly. But uh, Harakiri sometimes make, make, makes you win. No street demonstrations for us. No placards, no Molotov cocktails, no lectures, no stone throwing. Until the last desperate moment, we shall refuse to commit ourselves to action, for we are the world's least armed, most spiritual army. Some people mockingly refer to us as toy soldiers. Let us see. Hello and welcome back to History Homos. Uh, this week, uh, doing something a little different. Uh, William is on vacation. Um, and uh, he is spending his uh, week on the Emerald Island of Ireland. And uh, this episode will uh, be out. He'll be he'll be back, I think, before uh, this comes out. But I hope that he has a good time there. And uh, yeah. So uh, tonight I decided to. Um, well, let me let me talk about a little bit about the genesis of this episode. Because I had initially thought I would like to do like a literature review episode for while he was gone and to do a short story. Uh, so I had been meaning to uh, do as an analysis, uh, do an analysis of uh, the short story Patriotism by Yukio Mishima. And uh, it sort of occurred to me while I was preparing to do the research for this and the the review that um, I, I would spend a good portion of the episode 
talking about who Mishima is. And it, it occurs to me also that like his life in general is sort of very, it also very much parallels that story um, in that it ends violently in a uh, ritual suicide um, <laughs> for political reasons, for right wing nationalist political reasons. Um, and uh, so for those of you who don't know who Yukio Mishima is, uh, he was a well, uh, possibly, definitely one of the most popular uh, authors at the time in uh, Japan. Um, he was considered several times for a Nobel Prize in literature. Um, however you feel about the Nobel Prize, of course, I... Um, and, uh, he also, like I said, uh, tried to start a, uh, right-wing coup to take over the, uh, Japanese military and reinstall, uh, the emperor as the head of the Japanese government and failing that because it, it did indeed fail. Uh, he decided that he would commit suicide, uh, by seppuku. Which is to say that he jammed his uh, his um, katana into his guts and tore sideways, and then to finish, he uh, was sort of decapitated. Um, and it's very uh, traditional within the Japanese um, culture, uh, from dating back to the samurai and bushido. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so he was, uh, actually a descendant of Samurai. Uh, he was, uh, descendant of the founder of the Tokugawa Shogunate, which was like one of the most, during the, one of the most classic periods of the medieval Japan was when they were in power. Um, but that was, uh, that, that was a distant relative, obviously of him. But, um, anyway, so I, I'm, I'm wondering how I should frame this because we, I'm going to get into like his whole life and, and I, I've read several of his works that I'd like to at least briefly analyze. And essentially what I've got to do is I have to talk intelligently about it for an hour. That's what me and William always say to each other um, when we're preparing for an episode. Do you think we can talk about it intelligently for an hour? Well, hopefully I can talk about it intelligently for an hour. I will say this before we start is um, I was uh, sort of uh, shooting some of my thoughts about it to some uh, people to picking their brains about it. And um, I someone had mentioned to me that I sort of misused uh, I, I sort of used Nietzsche, the word, the name Nietzsche, to sort of generally uh, refer to the entire German idealist movement. Um, and so I, it, I, I guess it's worth mentioning that um, I, occasionally we should mention this on the show is that I'm not actually educated. I'm completely self-taught um, historian, big air quotes there. Um so occasionally I do get stuff wrong. And uh, I always say this, by the way, if I ever get something wrong, just please email me at historyhomos at gmail.com and uh, just uh, let me know. I'd appreciate it, actually. But anyway, so let's get into Mishima. 
Um, also, another thing just to start is like I'm a fucking huge weeb. I love Japan, and this has been like a real joy for me to look into like the real deep culture of Japan. <laughs> You know, I mean, that is and you'll see why when we start really getting into his life and beliefs. But uh, we'll get to that when we get to that. I will start by saying this. There's a lot of analyses. This is a pretty crazy story. I know it's like it it sounds on on its face sounds kind of uh, out there. Uh, My father-in-law had read a book by him prior to me ever reading anything about it read any of his writings and uh i said i had known who he was though and said did you look into this guy's bio and he said yeah his life is like a real life action movie (laughs) and so yeah i mean like this is kind of like a canny person in history so a lot of people want to comment on it, of course, online, and uh, a lot of like more edgy left wingers like to sort of comment on his work, and uh, or not even just left wingers. Everybody likes to comment on it, but I I will say this: I think this will be a slightly unique uh, analysis of of the man and the work uh, because there's something I've noticed that's in common between all of these other uh, podcasts, videos, what have you, analysis videos, a lot of YouTube content. Oh, you might hear um, my uh, air conditioner is coming on. I apologize, but it's it's fucking 90 degrees outside, so deal with it. Um, yeah, so I noticed that a lot of these people do this, but uh, what I'll, you'll see, though, is that they'll put a nice country mile between themselves and Mishima. Um, and... Uh, you know, uh, for fear of becoming sort of branded as like a fascist sympathizer. And a lot of people will like sort of downplay his politics in general. Uh, I don't, I will not be doing this uh, for the episode. Um, and I'll tell you why. Uh, or I have an anal- I have a, a sort of um, analysis as to why that may be for a lot of people who otherwise would be kind of open minded. The. I think one of the key reasons is that another thing is like they'll a lot of people will sort of play up his like some other quirks about him, like the fact that he was a repressed homosexual um, and the fact that, you know, this whole suicide angle, they'll be like, he's crazy. You know, that's that. I mean, I understand he committed seppuku, he cut his he disemboweled himself. I get it. it. It comes off as a little unhinged, especially to a Westerner. Really is what the bo- the uh, the bottom line is, though. It's 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 sort of, uh, and we'll get into this too. Uh, um, the bottom line is that it's just very alien to us as Westerners. But the other thing is, I feel like Mishima's political, politically speaking, Mishima's starting point is that maybe uh, America winning World War II was a bad thing. That's basically what it boils down to with Mishima's belief, because, I mean, he's f- primarily concerned with the nation of Japan. And when I, when I say nation, I do mean the people of Japan. Um, and to that end, America uh, having absolute hegemonic control of the global economy and geopolit- geopolitical superstructure. And when I say U.S., I mean 
the the fucking Zionist technocrats. It's a Zionist um, imperialist system uh, that is based off of uh, usury and uh, and sort of enslave economic enslavement glo- globally. And and, the, and I think Mishima is one of the few people. Or not one of the few. I mean, that's very silly to say, but Mishima was comfortable saying this and feeling this that um, that this was, you know, a tragedy that the whole world was under hegemonic control. Um, and the th- problem with this for Westerners looking at Mishima is that sort of the moral basis for our entire way of life, our entire system, our entire liberal society, as it were. Um, is basically predicated on the good overcame evil in World War II narrative and the six Guerrillian wooden doors stuff. Um, and that's really uncomfortable for people from the West to comment on as far as these politics go. And uh, Mishima, and we'll, we'll get a little bit more into his uh, like specific beliefs or where they kind of Venn diagram with mine anyway later. But uh, I think one of his key things is that he recognized the American imposed system on Japan, at least, was corrosive. And, you know, I'll even go so far as to say I think he understood this Zionist imperialist cap neoliberal capitalist system to be corrosive to any nation that it subjugates. Um, and then, you know, just certain ones get get the boot quicker than the others. And I think because um, because he, he was really active in the 50s and 60s. And while that was like an economic uh, really good for economics for Japan, uh, partially because they sort of cozy sidled up to the fucking B system. uh Culturally, like it was a very, very stark difference for them because it was, you know, I mean, Japan's a very strong uh, or is a very unique culture and and strong is a is a good word. Um, And then it suddenly became westernized like nearly overnight. And like Mishima grew up in a time where they were just imperialists born in 1925. They were in the meat of being like fucking imperial japan being the fucking what do they call the showa period um and uh that was and that was like his his primary his primary focus throughout his career was sort of like mourning the end of that and and the you know sort of um adherence to, of japan to the monoculture anti-culture it's not culture it's the opposite of culture um yeah so and that's really uncomfortable for a lot of commentators uh uh, particularly ones who are like sort of at least in the middle or left so there we got that out of the way i guess we should start out uh by talking about who mishima was like I said, he was born in 1925. Let me just, before I do that, let me just look at my notes here. Um, oh, that was the other thing. Oh, and specifically, going back to that other point about uh, about uh, people being squeamish about it, 
um, here's the thing is uh, th- they'll really downplay like his and they'll, they'll sort of play into this narrative, this media approved narrative, who I believe, by the way, um, it, the person who sort of pushed this who pushed this narrative that it was like he did it for the suicide, like the whole the whole doing a coup to overthrow the oppressive American, you know, regime. Uh, a lot of people dismiss it as being like, oh, he just sort of bound that up in his suicide. And by the way, the person I think put this forward is this guy named John Nathan. Interesting last name there. Uh, reminds me of a certain prophet in the Old Testament. Um, and he was a biographer of Mishima, and he was the guy, sort of, I, I believe, in my opinion, again, email me if you have a problem with it, uh, he was the kind of guy who sort of put this narrative, and it was like the most comfortable for the center or left of center person to accept. Um, now, but this is, the, this is my contention, is that um, I don't believe what he did to overthrow, or try to, air quotes, try to overthrow the government, um, or do a coup, a military coup. I believe it was absolutely, in light of what was going on, in light of what was going on in the world, I believe what his actions were absolutely politically rational. And I don't believe it was a suicidal... I mean, there was definitely suicidal ideation involved in it. And also, it's that's one of the major themes, not just of Mishima's work, but also of Mishima's life, is like this hyper-focus on death. But I just like relate to that separate from my political beliefs you know just like the death is like and this is again this is one of the the really themes that is like very very evident in his work is that like life and death are just two sides of the two other opposite sides of the coin and they you can't have life with there's nothing to compare life. I mean, it's just this is all fucking well, philosophy one on one stuff. But, you know, his hallmark is taking these concepts and just using nature to illustrate them beautifully. And we'll get into that, too. When we get to that. We'll get to that later. <laughs> I got so much I got to get to later. Um, yeah. But I believe it was totally politically rational to try to. I mean, listen, Japan was populous despite all the people it lost at the fucking absolute genocidal maniacs uh, of the American military uh, slash uh, fucking executive branch by nuking them. If if you believe in nukes, I personally do. Um, And also just like the absolute toll, I mean, the firebombing, et cetera, et cetera, it was a fucking mess. Um, and just being in World War Two, fucking rough go, rough sledding. Um, yeah, so I just don't understand why there's like this squeamishness towards thinking like, oh, he had, it definitely was definitely wasn't seriously political. He was, and he was right in a lot of ways. Uh, I mean, I'm not a Japanese person, so I don't know what the pulse of the people of Japan are, but it seemed like he had a lot of support. To this day, people celebrate the day of his death uh, over there, um, and I don't think there. I don't think the media is putting a mic in those people's faces, frankly. Um, okay, so you got that out of the way, the political stuff. Well, I mean, we'll obviously talk more about it, but 
First, we'll start with his life. So I said he was born on, in January of 1925. Uh, his real name, I know I keep saying, I'm going to say Mishima throughout the Yukio Mishima for the duration of the show because that's sort of how he went. And the, you know, there's times where he would use his real name for ultimate sincerity or whatever. But it's sort of this is how he's known to the world. It's how he wanted to be known to the world. But his real name is Hiraoka Kimitaki. Uh, and uh, the, he, like I said, he was uh, the descendant of uh, the guy who started the Tokugawa dynasty. Uh, and, uh, at the beginning of his life, uh, he was actually, like, sort of, uh, taken into, like, familial custody by his grandmother, and, uh, he was, um, he was sort of, like, smothered. He was sort of, like, uh, Munchausen's by proxied and kept in the sick room in his, in his house until he was 12 years old and was only, like, rarely brought out by only his grandmother. And then at 12, his family, the rest of his family were like, all right, he's got to, like, have a life here. And his dad was, like, you know, typical Japanese dad, uh, pretty fucking always disappointed in him uh, and didn't want... He wanted him to be, like, a uh, civil servant. Ugh, can you imagine, by the way? I know, like, I mean, like, wh who do I... Who, would, who do I respect less, an artist or a fucking civil servant? <laughs> yes is the answer <laughs> um just kidding uh but yeah so his dad was not happy about his whole um his whole being wanting to be an author thing because that's what fucking poor well that's what uh you know that's not what our family does we're like uh middle class actually they're kind of well to do um and uh, I think the other side of the family had someone who they were famous to have uh, descended from as well. But all good. Not really that important, frankly. Just uh, I guess it is sort of important that you know that it's uh, he was sort of noble descended, but it's not really important to the story who. Anyway, so he was a little secret fag. I believe he discovered his homosexuality as a young boy. Um I got to imagine, I, and people know about my belief on homosexuality, uh, or its origins, I should say. Um, and, uh, I, uh, I, I would imagine there likely was some sort of trauma to Mishima. I think it was definitely traumatic for him to have been kept in a room for 12 years. I don't know if it's necessarily sexually traumatic, but I mean, there's a lot of stuff in his writings that seem to be uh, sort of uh, autobiographical. His his novels that he always sort of puts little things from his real life into uh, that seem like you know it was uh, it was one it, he may have seen things or uh, things that didn't settle right with him. And you know, listen, this is uh, this is who he is. It's a complicated figure. I mean, that's another thing, too, with the homosexuality. I'll just say this, and maybe we could just this could be the extent of our talking about it. It's like this was like a major sort of source of conflict in his own personal ideology. I don't think he thought of himself. I don't think he thought that he should be gay um, because he was, frankly, very like a conservative reactionary. Essentially, he's a reactionary. 
and I I think he he himself recognized within himself that uh, to live that way, he would have to deny himself whatever uh, his paraphilia. Um, or or not, I, I think he did indulge in it quite a bit. But I mean, like that was that was a source of conflict within his whole life and uh, his psyche, as it were. Um, and uh, yeah, so he he actually to this end he he went in those years with his grandmother. She kind of got him into the no n o h no theater no. Uh, and also the um, Kabuki, Kabuki Theater, uh, which is traditionally played by female impersonating men. And this is, I think, a big source of the homosexual thing. Um, it's like a real weird. Like, here's the thing. And, and oh, fuck, I should have talked about Shinto a little bit before we got into. We'll, we'll take a break here and talk about Shinto for a minute. Uh, this whole topic, like I said, I did a lot of research for this, and I had to learn a lot of different new concepts to me, new to me, concepts. Um, and one of that is just sort of like the religion, national, big air quotes here, national religion of Japan, which is Shintoism or Shinto. Uh, and um, basically what I can glean from it is that it's essentially it's similar to hinduism in the sense that it is not one codified religion uh but rather like a set of pagan animist localized beliefs based off of what your family is where you're from uh you know what shrines you are near um sort of what social class you are um, and it, it, it and also Shinto and, and this is something that I think uh, Mishima focused on a bit in his writing is that Shinto to be Shinto to be Japanese is to be an adherent of Shinto unless you're going to be intentionally going out of your way to be a godless communist um, because it is part of and this is a, a well-tread term within sort of Japanese intra-Japanese sociology but it's uh, Yamato Gokaro, which is the Japanese heart. It's part of what it is to be Japanese. Uh, and Shinto is like a, the spiritual representation of that. And it's here's the here's the key thing that I have issues with. Um, now, I was raised secular in America here, obviously, but um, sort of the. Uh, in America, generally speaking, we have a Western Christian sort of ontology or starting point. Uh, and so all of our morality sort of goes, comes from that origin. And now, of course, you know, certain groups and political special interests have um, sort of uh, shaken that and sort of... Uh, you know, used used its weak points to sort of do things that it was never meant to do, uh, which is uh, a shame. But ultimately, the beginning of it is like sort of the, you know, Western Catholic morality or liturgical morality, generally speaking. Um, and so it's very alien to us. And the gay thing, it's like I there's instances in and this is going to sound like some sort of fucking Shlomo like sociology 
like 70s sort of deconstructionism bullshit. But I mean, there's a fair bit of buggery going on in, in medieval Japan that was sort of tolerated. Um, in contrast with, you know, a lot of those 70s fucking deconstructionist guys are all like, actually, uh, you know, the ancient Greeks and Romans were all fags. And it's like not true. But there's a little bit of gender bending um, in the Japanese sort of cold bedrock. The other thing is, uh, the other thing is, uh, sorry, a little something in my throat. The other thing is, at some point with the uh, interplay between the Japanese and the Chinese, Buddhism, which had come obviously from India, but up through China and made its way in, into Japan, um, it actually sort of synthesized into uh, Shinto. And it was sort of just like, here's the thing, it's not like a religious, there's no Pope of Shinto. So it sort of just meshed into, and a lot of the cosmology of Buddhism and some of like the the pagan, like the Indian pagan stuff where the rebirth and the, all this sort of next life stuff, that sort of leached its way through medieval Japan into the culture and re, big air quotes religion of Shinto. And... Uh, they're to, to the point where their two things were inseparable, essentially. They're not different things. Um, and, 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 and adherence to Shinto traditions was to be, you would also be sort of adherent to the big tent Buddhist practices and with local variations, of course. Um, and it's actually in the, uh, the period, the, the imperial period, um, the Showa period, uh, they actually tried to get rid of any reference to Buddhism because they were, you know, like, no, we're imperial nationalist Japan. Uh, so it's all about Shinto. It's a state religion. They made a state religion at that point. Um, and, uh, yeah, well, that, and so, so to, I say that to say that's the form of Shinto that, that Mishima was sort of an adherent to was that like Showa, um, era sort of state style, that nationalist style of Shinto. Um, and yeah, so that's kind of an important thing about his upbringing, not just upbringing, but his like his view on it. And also it's a little bit of a peek at why, you know, he sort of maybe thought I, I feel one, you know, I, I, I'm going to let myself be naughty a little bit with being gay. Now, again, he was married. He had an arranged marriage to like a daughter of like a very famous, influential painter who he respected. But, uh, as, you know, uh, a lot of people editorialized the fact that he did that sort of to make his parents happy. And uh, also because, again, I, I would imagine there was a lot of him that was saying, you must, you know, you got to do it. You got to be a father. You got to spread your fucking, your Mishima genes. You got to spread the fuck, you got to the next generation of geniuses. I don't know what his kids have done. Who knows? Um, I guess they're kind of like boomers, huh? No, I guess they're Gen Xers. They were born in the 70s or something. No, 60s. They're fucking boomers, dude. <laughs> so but they're up to no good. <laughs> I'm just fucking around. Uh, all respect to the fam. Of the the Mishmeister. Uh, yeah, so 
Oh yeah, there's the other thing. Speaking of Meisters, um, dude was a big old fucking Teutonophile. He loved Germany. He loved German philosophy. He loved the idealists. Uh, he loved Nietzsche. He loved Wagner. He loved everything German. The first language he learned, other than Jack, and the guy learned fucking five languages, I think, um, was German. And I mean, like, frankly, even in all, even in that, even in a prior to Germany being pissed on after the First World War, that was never a thing that somebody did unless they really liked German. <laughs> it was never, you know, there was never a time where German was going to be the internet. Well, there was one point where German was going to be the international language, but this was not it. <laughs> but you know what I mean? France used to be, French used to be the international language prior to English being it. Because um, it sounds so good, it sounds so good to talk to you about government. Anyway, so um, yeah, so he was a big germophile, germanophile, if you will, um, and uh, he. Uh, where was I going with that? Oh yeah, so he started writing when he was a boy. Oh, and the Kabuki thing. Yeah, yeah. Fuck it. He liked Kabuki. So he started, um, the other thing, uh, for all the talk he does about being like a Japanese traditionalist, this guy loved stuff from Europe. He was definitely sort of, um, I mean, like I said, he was a Teutonophile, but he also liked, you know, English stuff. He liked American, certain American stuff. And, uh, you know, despite the fact that he had, like, major criticisms of, like, the American system, it seems like as far as a one-to-one -one person sort of thing, he had no problem with Americans. Um, yeah, so he started writing, uh, and uh, it's it, worth mentioning that this was during the Japanese imperial period. And because he was sort of, you know, first of all, inclined towards it himself... And he wrote a lot about, um, you know, Japanese heritage and Japanese culture. And that was something that, I mean, go figure. I know this is so alien to you listening. I, whoever, wherever you live in the world, unless it's somewhere like China, uh, not even Japan, but wherever you are in the world, there's a you know concerted effort from your rulers to downplay your culture. Um, all, all in 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 concert. Um, now what a concept! During this period in Japan, they had and they had a con they had a, a concerted effort to sort of promote their own culture. And because of this, a young talented man at age of sixteen, uh, young uh, Yukio Mishima, was invited to be published in uh, you know. Um, literature magazines and 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 such and and journals Janaru. uh that's actually the word for journal and, and this is something else i wanted to talk about too is like japan is yeah, i can't, can't i can't tell you enough how much of a fucking conquered people or or country they are uh, i want to give them credit because i hope they're as a people they're not conquered i want them to be strong i want them to be like mishima uh, 
But uh, to the point where, like, all the new words in fucking Japanese are just a fucking English with at the end. Janaru. Tabako. Yeah, that's cigarette is tabako. Well, you know what? Tobacco probably ain't a fucking originally English word, as it were. But that's what I'm trying to say. It's like all the fucking new words in Japanese are, you know, like gun. Not really. <laughs> it's not gun. But chicken tendaru. I'm serious. That's a real thing. It's fucked up. What the fuck happened to them? Well, I'll tell you what. Got two fucking nukes. And the fucking scientist banking system. Uh, anyway, so he was invited to publish to have his stories published. Uh, he wrote a couple stories, one of which was called "Forest in Full Bloom," Hanazaraki no Mori, um, and uh, he sort of. Um, was was taken under the wing of uh by this the a board member at the journal Janaru that uh published him and it was a guy named Hasuda Zenme um and he uh sort of took Mishima under his wing and this is also the the origin of his name Yukio Mishima uh was uh was because he picked him up Hasuda uh, picked him up uh, at Mishima Station, and they were on their way to the meeting where they were going to submit his uh, submit his piece. And uh, they saw the snow on uh, on Mount Fuji, and uh, Yukio comes from the word Yuki, which means snow. Um, and here's the other thing: we talked a little bit of this when we were talking about uh, what's his name, Huey Long. This was, again, the 20s, and I want to say, actually, well, no, I was a little earlier now that I'm thinking about it, but my point is, is that this is something you'll see. And so this guy just, this guy was a writer and teacher and board member on this journal, and he just, for no reason, air quotes, took Mishima under his wing, and there's nothing gay about it. Well, I'll tell you what's going on here. It was a high trust society. He wanted his country to do well. He wanted a young artist who he saw as talented to do well and make something that their country and their nation, that the people of Japan, Nippon, um, could be proud of. And you don't see that anymore because we're so shattered and we're so fucked up. And our unity is, uh, you know, our, our common, bo- there's no common bonds. And we're not allowed to associate by the things that we have in common. We're only allowed to associate by stupid shit like uh, which fucking Zionist political party you follow and whatnot, you know? Uh, and yeah, so, you know, I, again, you're going to say, Scott, you just this whole thing about how he's gay. And then you're saying this guy takes him under his wing and you're saying it's not gay. Are you so broken brained that you can't not see fucking diddling of a 16 year old boy when you see a man helping him? I'm not that broken brain. <laughs> anyway, so, uh, Hasuda, 
uh, was um, sort of his 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 mentor, and uh, he actually was deployed for a while, and then he was deployed to the to the fight to the fucking shit against the American fucking pig Americans. Um, and uh, when he left, he said to Mishima, "I have entrusted the future of Japan to you." Um, and I got to imagine this was, I mean, just imagine who you think about this. You want to be a writer. You're, you're confused about your sexuality. Um, and this guy sort of gives you this golden ticket to like, uh, on ramp to success in, in doing something you not only believe in, you, you want to make the art and you want to make something beautiful, but also you politically feel like invigorated by this connection to your culture. And then this guy, it goes off. He's about to go off and fight for your nation. And he says this to you. And you have so much respect for this guy. And then he dies on in the in the field. And better than that, he died of a fucking self-inflicted gunshot wound after he he shot his commanding officer who is disparaging the emperor. Now, again, you're going to say to me, how do we know this? <laughs> how do we know it's true? Listen, <laughs> I, choose, I choose to believe it. So, but especially in light of that, even if he was just choosing to believe it. In light of that, imagine you hear that, and he, the last thing that man said to you was, I have entrusted the future of Japan to you. That's going to mean something, man. Anyway, so he gets writes some more stuff. He writes a story kind of about being gay. This is the other thing. I He definitely wrote some stuff about being gay, and I'm not going to pretend like he didn't. And also, like even the stuff that I believe to be like sort of uh, giving a good moral message are... Uh, they're kind of they they're erotic. They can be erotic, you know. Uh, he's sort of and this is the other thing I was saying before: life, death, sex, glory. These are things that he's concerned with. Real things, real life things, real things that you can that have existed in human history and anthropological history. Go back, and these things mattered: life, death, uh, the sun, the moon, sex war all these things are important these are jungian archetypes i guess i don't really i haven't really read it extensively to be honest but uh so yeah he wrote a little bit about sex and early on he wrote a few books about uh how he admitted sort of being a fag uh and um but here's my other thing is I feel like they promoted him a little bit because they thought he was going to be like a in a way I was I was going to make this comparison too is that he's sort of like the Japanese Andy Warhol in that he became like an all encompassing art celebrity in the country of Japan like he uh, but the opposite the, on contrary to fucking Andy Warhol CIA asset fucking Andy Warhol he wasn't just trying to destroy his, his society he was trying to in spite of you know his you know in his opinion moral shortcomings as a homosexual he was trying to sort of redeem the soul of the nation as opposed to you know destroy it through like Andy Warhol was and the CIA um, anyway so uh, what was I going to say yeah, so he started getting steam, 
essentially. Uh, and uh, oh, also before that, at the very conclusion of the of World War Two. Or not even quite, just a, 1944, April 1944, he got a draft notice. And you got to think, on some level, or I bet you're thinking right now, after all the shit I've said about him, he probably was like, Jesus Christ. Sorry about that. He's probably champion of the bit to uh, go fight, right? Um, well, he went and did his... Uh, he went and did his uh he went to do his uh his draft notice his draft uh, meeting and he had a cold that day and uh he sort of played up the cold and uh said that he had you know had the problem for a while and kind of basically used this opportunity of the cold to be diagnosed with like a, 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 what's the word? Um, what would a disqualifying condition? A disqualifying condition. Uh, it says tuberculosis. I don't think they thought he had tuberculosis. I think he had like they thought he had, it was like a little weak, weak lunged, weakling. As I understand it, at this point in his life, he was like extremely underweight, like sunken chest, and he was really short too. He's only five one. Um, again. Two Westerners. He's very short. I assume he was probably just regular short for a Japanese person. But uh, yeah, so uh, he sort of pussied out about it. And I think this is, again, so the homosexuality was something that was a huge conflict in his life. I think this was an enormous problem for him in his life or, um, or sort of conflict for him in his life. How could he reconcile? This this lack of bravery, this lack of honor that he did to his country, you know. Um, so I think after that, he sort of had a chip in his shoulder and he really uh, felt that they sort of redoubled. This is the thing. Like, I, I feel like a lot of these little contradictions in his his life just pushed him more and more redoubled in his beliefs and in his actions later in his life. Like he felt like he needed to make up for lost time. And again, we're going to talk about sun and steel and he does like actually put the fine point on it as far as getting in shape goes, but we'll get to that. So apparently, by the way, he, it's because it's a good thing air quotes. I mean, I guess it guess it's a good thing for him that he did not go because the, the, the guys that he, was going to go with went to the Philippines and were fucking killed by fucking GI Joe. Um, so yeah, he would have been dead most likely. I mean, it was probably a nine out of 10 kill rate. So he might've slipped through, but he definitely wouldn't have been mentally. Well, I don't know how they would have done. I don't know how any of the fucking, the greatest generation guys dealt with that. I've never met one. I only know boomers. <laughs> um, I've never talked to one like like that, I guess, I should say. I have met them, obviously. Um, yeah, so war's over. Uh, you know, you know what happened. Bad stuff. Um and uh the nineteen forty seven uh American 
endorsed constitution of Japan, which as it stands at this moment is the longest serving uh, constitution, which is kind of crazy. It's like, what would, wouldn't you think? I mean, I mean, America is even, they always say, these fucking founding fathers never thought you should have an AR-14. They say shit like that. But I mean, there's been amendments. There has been no amendments, to my knowledge, to the 1947 Japanese constitution. That's just the way America likes it. Um, also worth mentioning is, oh, I have the bitch's name right here. Uh, the woman's name is Beat Sirota. Um, and it may have been Sirota from marriage because she is a Jewish lady who was 27 years old at the time and in the year 1947. And she was a major fucking writer of the 1947 Japanese constitution. How insane is it? Why should a 27 year old anything have their hands on a fucking, uh, constitution? And by the way, what kind of shit do you think she put in there? Do you think she put based in red pilled shit? Eh. No, she put in feminist bullshit. Um, and I don't know exactly what it is. Maybe we'll do another episode. It's not my fucking problem right now. I'm going to be like, well, what exactly is it? Can you define woke? <laughs> I don't use that word, by the way. But, you know, that's like the typical fucking soy jack. Like, they can't even say what it is. I can. But I can't even say what this is because I don't care enough to look into it at this time. I have more important things to talk about. But, uh, yeah, this is when I was going to talk about Japan is an inherently conquered nation. Yeah, the anglicized. Uh, oh, yeah, but in contrast with the, you know, the Americanized language with the uh, at the end of things. Um. Uh, Mishima liked to play around with the words and concepts that were quintessentially Japanese. Like the title of patriotism, like we get the book patriotism uh, or story patriotism here. But the title of it is, oh shit, I don't have it right here. Fuck. It's Yukoku. Um, and that does not just mean patriotism. It means like a fucking sentence. It means like the feeling you get when you're working towards the benefit of your country or something like that. Um, and, uh, he liked that. He liked to use those words a lot. Um, yeah. Anyway, so he had a, at this point, this is the post-war era. He comes out with this book called um, Confessions of a Mask uh, in 1948, 1949. Uh, and this is, he's basically an overnight celebrity from this. It's sort of autobiographical um, and it's sort of about being gay, which as I was mentioned before, is like, hmm, maybe this is why he was just promoted at first. Um. And yeah, so he's 24 years old. He's a fucking nationwide celebrity. And uh, became rich. He became, or well-to-do, I should say. Not like rich, rich. Also, I think he was well-to-do prior to that. But also the other thing is like he had to fight with his fucking dad to let him be an author, which is pretty funny. Is that like you're a grown-ass man 
literally fucking like getting book deals and shit. And you'd be like, dad. And his dad's like, okay, fine. I guess you can. Motherfucker. Little faggot. Um, yeah, it's pretty funny. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So the other thing that was going on, yeah, she had a bunch of other fucking huge hits. Uh, fucking Temple of the Golden Pavilion. Uh, Sound of Waves. That's a biggie. Um, and, uh, yeah. So at this point, um, this was when he started getting political because what was going on in the 1960s was uh, the Anpo protests, which was a series sort of, uh, here's the thing. It was like a really... Um, incoherent stuff that was going on here. And then part of that is just because of the American pseudo-occupation. Occupation. Um, they couldn't really politically... I mean, like, I gotta be honest, like, the, the, the fucking Americans were sort of, like, allowing, or not allowing, sort of fostering, like, the left to grow. Um, and the Japanese, like, the rank-and-file Japs are fucking not happy with this. Like, they're, they're like, pretty fucking... I mean... There's a, obviously a non-zero amount of communism that was just happening in the 60s. This is, we're talking about the 1960s here. So, I mean, in the West, you know, you had... I mean, it was all fucking COINTELPRO bullshit anyway, though, dude. It's all controlled up. And I assume, by the way, the fucking... Uh, the communist shit in, uh, in Japan was also, on some level, fucking controlled up. Because what it led to was a bunch of fucking color revolution shit, like uh, a, the big, oh yeah, there was like a conservative but not far right um, prime minister in, and uh, like they, the the students at like University of something or other took over the school and like they, uh, in order to protest, I don't remember what it was, exactly it was, it's not really super important to be honest. But basically, the uh, they they were like trying to like they wanted to move away from the whole Japanese the Japanese being dominated by the Americans thing, both sides. I mean, like the left and the right sort of agreed on this. I mean, it's just fucking common sense. Why would you want to be dominated by your fucking invaders? And uh, yeah, so and then there it resulted in like a big fucking Greg Floyd kind of thing, like one female protester died or whatever, and then the fucking the prime minister to step down. Uh here, I'll read the, a little bit from the wiki page here. Um the the Anbo protests were against uh an attempt by the US backed Prime Minister Nobusuke Kishi to revise the Treaty of Mutual Cooperation and Security between the United States and Japan, known as ANPO in Japanese, in order to cement the U.S.-Japan military allowance into place. He did not... Okay, so this is back to... Um, back to um, Ishiba. So, yeah, um, I think he felt left out about this because I, I think he was on the same side as the communists and he agreed with them, but he's like, oh, I don't like communists. That's bad. And then also they're like materialists, essentially. And uh, they're sort of against everything, I believe. Uh, so, yeah, he started becoming sort of an ideologue, a, a, a react reactionary 
pro i mean it definitely was evident his writing prior to this was like sort of this reverence for the culture of japan hang on i just gotta take a sip of water real quick i've been talking 52 minutes straight no water damn anyway yeah so after the anpo protests he writes patriotism now I wanted to talk a bit about patriotism. Patriotism is a story. And this is the other thing. I, when I initially came up with this episode, I was like, oh, I should do an episode about patriotism and the historical event that it was about, which is very complicated. And I'm not going to go super into it. But it's about the what was known as the February 24th, I want to say. Let's just open up a new tab here. The February 26th incident, I was going to say the 24th, 26th, which is something that happened in 1936 uh, in the Imperial Japanese Army. And it was a coup attempt uh, of a number of a faction of the Japanese military who were like super ultra nationalists as opposed to the already pretty nationalist pragmatist power guys who are in power in in the japan who knows maybe that change would have changed things if they were in power not my place to comment because i literally i tr dude i tried to look into it to sort of get like a like a real idea of what was going on but there's so many moving parts it goes back to like stuff like literally it went back to like familial like beef between like fucking regional warlords in like late medieval japan like it's not something i could just glance at and give you a good idea about but um all you need to know is that it was a coup attempt within the military sound familiar here a coup attempt within the military in order to bring more control of the military and of the uh gov civilian government in japan to the emperor now what does this sound like yes it sounds familiar because this is exactly what Mishima did later in his life. So this is a really important piece. This is now you're seeing where where my problem was with being like, oh, I'm gonna re I'm gonna do an episode on patriotism in the 26th February fucking incident. Yeah, no, you aren't, Scott. Um, so, and I read this. I read this book. Uh, it's short, um, but it is it is a great example of his writing. Um, and we'll go through it a little bit now. So it's about uh, this um, these this young couple, a guy who's in his uh, like thirty or something, who is a lieutenant in the Japanese Imperial Military Army, I should say. Um, and he uh, was part of the cadre of uh, military guys who were doing the coup, um, but he is left out. Of it because he assumes because his uh, comrades all saw how smitten with his wife and how happy he was as a recently married, you know, embodiment of, you know, again, this is all this is all Mishima stuff. This is he's an embodiment of the ultimate or the perfect, the quintessential Japanese couple who love one another. And, you know, they're part. And this is a major theme that goes throughout is that their love for one another mirrors their love for their nation um, to the point where uh, and here's a direct quote. Um, here we go. 
During the story, Shinji equates his love for his wife, Reiko, with his love for his country, particularly before they copulate for the last time, where Shinji states that he sees, quote, no conflict between the urges of his flesh and the sincerity of his patriotism, Yukoku. The lieutenant was even able to regard the two as part of the same thing. Um, and yes, that's this is like a major theme. So he and I and again, the problem with liberal society is that it conflates the nation with the government. They are not the same thing. When I say nation, I mean the people of Japan. And I believe that if you truly love your people. You do love, or it is similar to the way that you love your family, the way that you love your wife in like, not he, and this is maybe this is a little Japanese, but it goes in the Japanese culture, perhaps this sort of extends into the erotic. Now, I don't, you know, I just sort of, the way I see it is it's more like a healthy sexual relationship with your betrothed is a healthy part of your and that helps you be a better person be a better member of your nation be a better be a better individual or fuck individual yeah i just be a better guy be a member part of your community of your nation um yeah see look this is the other thing with the fucking we're in this liberal post-world war ii society where i had the instinct to just say individual and there's no it doesn't have any place in this conversation frankly and we're talking about the feeling of one's place in his world in the context of imperial japan and that's not has nothing to do with the individualism and we'll get to that when we talk about son's deal anyway so he decides uh Shinji decides that he oh yeah that that's the thing so and this may be this may be semi-historical I don't know how historical it is but apparently the K in the in the story at least he's told that he has to his his commanders and the the other members of the imperial military don't know that he was part of this cadre and they tell him you got to go catch them kill them and mark move your your troops towards them and take them out and at this point now you see the problem he would never I mean it it He's now put in a position where he's either forced to betray his direct comrades or betray the emperor. Uh, and um, he uh, and, and you can't do that. He's at a he's at a point. This is a no win situation. He. Um, he, he so he decides the only way he could take it this way out is and I think you might be not surprised by what he decides to do but he decides to commit seppuku and uh, he also says to his wife too by the way this is important he says to his wife I want to die first I want you to witness me die first now this and he even puts the fine point on it when he talks about this he says um, you know uh, if I this is like an ultimate endorsement of my belief in you, that you love me and that uh, you want what I want. And we are like, in, in essence, the same. We have the same mind of this. Uh, because think about it, like uh, in the, you know, like the if there if you got to imagine there's I'm sure in antiquity in Japan, there were instances of, you know, the fucking um, 
I mean, I mean, I could say this specifically. He, and this is in the story too, is that he says, "I'm not going to fucking kill you, then kill myself," which is a common, I assume, a common practice amongst samurai uh, to do this because they want to take their wife with them, but they don't trust their wife enough to actually do it. Now, this by by Shinji saying, "I'm going to do it first, and then you commit suicide," that's him saying. I really believe that you will follow me. I know that you love me that much that you can't live without me. So we're going to die together. And again, this is a, 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 a variation on a theme for Mishima. It was like death is like the ultimate um, is the ultimate like vindication of an idea, essentially, or like the permanence of an idea, you know? Uh, so, uh, they do that, and then you know it's it's very poetic. I recommend the story. Uh, they also have sex one last time, and again, it's like a big symbol for uh, his uh, feelings about his country. And uh, yeah, so that's patriotism. That is a uh, excellent book. He also uh, wrote. I read another of his books uh, called. Um, the sailor who hang on let me scroll just scroll down a bit the sailor who fell from grace from the sea was another book that i read by him uh it's a short novel where is it in his fucking history though i just want to like sort of stay in general in general fucking order god damn it Oh, yeah, he also became, like, a movie star and a fucking, uh, like, he started acting in Kabuki. And, he again, like I said, he was, like, Andy Warhol, essentially. Uh, he, first of all, it's, it's, there's a bunch of, like, fun fun facts about him here in Wikipedia. For instance, he was into man- manga, uh, which is, like, comic books, which is, like, Japanese comic books. Most of, most animes are based on, uh, are based on manga prior so if he was around for anime, anime did not really exist till after the 70s or late 70s. I feel like he would have really liked anime had it come to pass that he really got to check it out. Check it out. Yeah. So, um, oh, yeah. He also liked Godzilla. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Um, I was at the sci-fi, he's at the Arthur C. Pedophile Clark. Um yeah, what else here? Yeah, so, okay, yeah. So this at this point, again, so it was after the Anpo uh, protests, and he started getting political, and he actually started training with the uh, the Japanese ground defense forces. For a year, he hung out in the Japanese defense forces with, uh, and, they, and he went by his real name, so not Yukio Mishima. Nobody knew who he was, and he trained in secret. So they were treated. He was treated exactly like everyone else. Oh, yeah, he also got into, and it was in his thirties. He got into bodybuilding. Yeah, I guess let's talk about Sun and Steel now. I got a lot on Sun and Steel actually. So Sun and Steel is sort of his manifesto almost about his beliefs on both the written word and physical fitness and bodybuilding. And um, it's really interesting in context with today. Um, 
Now, these are some of the key things that I uh, wanted to talk about. One of the things he brings out is uh, sort of the dialectic between uh, the world of art and the world of physical space and of physical action, which he saw represented as muscles. And he actually uh, sort of embodies this in like the the symbols of sun and steel, sun being out in the sun uh, and, you know, sort of uh, amongst the vitamin D and under the sky, the lit sky where it's it's time to work. And steel, literally, he lifts pieces of steel. This is uh, like weights that he was lifting. But you know, even going back into antiquity, prior to prior to um, prior to weightlifting, uh, you know, what it was always well, not always, but it was you know, it's some form of ferrous metal <laughs> that um, people would would raise above their head, perhaps to you know, cut grass or cut uh, wheat or rice. Or whatever, what have you? But it's like it's the the forged in fire, something that was forged in fire that you then repeatedly use to uh, become honed, physically honed. And um, he uh, talks about the well, he finds so there's there's a dialectic between he he sort of highlights this dialectic between art, the written word. And this bodybuilding, or not just bodybuilding, but like the physical space. And he tried to find his work in his life, I should say. He sought to find synthesis between the two. Um, And I also would say more so like the, the guy he was in real life and the guy he wanted to be as represented by the characters in his writings or the values in his writing, I guess, were two things and then at some point in his li- in his life, the second half of his life, we'll say, um, he decided he would try his hardest with physical effort to make this, make these two things the same. And he was going to achieve this through like physical toil and becoming buff, becoming fucking Jack Diesel. And I don't mean fat. Uh... And uh, he also like sort of highlighted the fact that um, well, uh, physical fitness or just your physicality is an impermanent thing inherently. There's entropy. We live in a world with entropy and it's impermanent that you will be this. And this is like a major theme throughout Japanese literature in general is that like there's like shame in or not even shame, but there's sort of like... Uh, there's a sadness in becoming withered and old and and shit. You know, there's like that like real uh, zest for life th- through the beating heart of their literature, essentially. And uh, and and to to be in Mishima's opinion is to be constantly dying, essentially. Um, and so, but he also says that in in. Th- that the word of word, the written word is timeless, is inherently timeless. It's outside of our physical existence. And what he wanted to do in life and in war and literature was to create the spirit of the physical, but imbued with the permanence of literature. Um, and I think and not to jump ahead here, but I mean, just like by killing himself in like this very theatrical literary way, uh, 
literally he aped his own story uh, with Patriots. I mean, literally committed seppuku uh, during a coup for, you know, for the Japanese emperor. Uh, and by doing this, he sort of this was his way of of sort of creating that synthesis in a final way and like sort of putting a nice punctuation mark at the end of it, you know. Um, he says uh, that, yeah, so like the world of of the physical is the world of the day and the intellectual is the night is of the night. Um and like the weak little like worm crawls through the night. You know what I mean? And he also says like only weak men. He also just like goes on about, he's like very, I don't know if he read Carlisle, uh, Thomas Carlisle, but if he hadn't, I would say that if he had, he would have loved it because I got to imagine he did. He fucking read all that kind of ge- German shit that was influenced by Carlisle. So I got to imagine he read Carlisle too. So Basically, he goes on. So he talks about the heroic figure and how in the modern liberal society that he has no place. Uh, the liberal, I'm sorry, the 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 heroic figure, and that this liberal society sort of uh, empowers the night person, the nightman, dayman. Oh. Yeah, so Dayman versus Nightman. The Nightman is like the fucking, um, what's the hell is that character's name in the fucking Fountainhead? I always pictured him very Jewish, but I know he's not because like all the good guys in uh, Atlas Shrugged and fucking uh, uh, Fountainhead are Jews. But um, yeah, he's like the, like the, like the cunty, like sarcastic fucking Poindexter guy. Like, you know what I fucking, you know, that archetype, that shitty, weak bodied, you know, he literally says like the people who say that heroic fucking like platonic figures like fucking Achilles and whatnot are fat. He's like basically says in a book, he says post physique, bro. You're going to come at my fucking heroes. You're going to come at my fucking my fucking b- beliefs about about life post physique. How are you going to fucking I, I, I don't believe you're not a fat fucking piece of shit. <laughs> Uh, if you, if, if this is the kind of shit you're saying, if you're saying that kind of shit, I bet you're fat is basically what Bishima says in a book in 1966 or something based. Um, so yeah, another thing is, so he goes, and this is okay. This is the thing that I, I've noticed a lot of people avoid this when they're talking about Sun and Steel and they're doing an analysis of Sun and Steel. This whole section he does, um, Individual versus group. Mishima says, words are the trade of an individual. I was talking a little about this before. Words are the trade of an individual and actions are the trade of groups. The divide between mental and physical is the same as group and slash individual. Uh, Or vice versa. You know what I fucking mean. So... And he also says, only through collective physical action can one identify with a group. In Japanese culture, this is often expressed through martial arts. In European culture, this is my, this is, this is me. I'm literally reading from my notes right now. In European culture, so in Japan, Japan, like this, this is often done through, like I said, uh, martial arts and, and doing this together. Or in, in, in Mishima's case, just weightlifting. He also did other shit. He was like into Kenpo, karate. All kinds of stuff. 
but uh, he mainly was like a uh, weightlifter. But uh, so, but in in the European tradition, it's like sort of the collective conquer of our harsh climate in Europe. Like that's sort of what like the cheat code for the Europeans was to live was that they were incredibly cooperative and sort of had like a cultural, a socially enforced cultural norms that um, ensured our survival in in a freezing cold fucking tundra, not tundra, but you know what I mean, in freezing cold in the winter and then hot in the summer, you know, it was tough. And then there was, you know, a lot of fucking, uh, what do you call those, uh, droughts, or not droughts, famines and shit. And uh, there had to be like, uh, I remember I was talking about this before, but like the high trust society and to have a high enough trust society that things didn't just fall apart. And, and like, I assume throughout the battery of evolution uh, and like the, you know, the, that's how the Europeans got to be through ge- successive generations and generations and generations. It's no accident that they ended up like that and vice versa for the Japanese. Um but I think this is the human thing is that both of these two different things are the same thing, essentially, is that it's physical action, collective physical action uh, is what brings you together like this. And whether it's just surviving or it's doing martial arts or it's doing some sort of majorly codified pseudo religious code of ethics for your war. Uh, in the form of Bushido for the Japanese. Um, yeah. And so, and, and another thing is that he, very explicitly, uh, Mishima, I correctly, in my opinion, identifies the focus on the individual inherent to liberal society as its greatest failing. And I agree with this. And I, I noticed that a lot of people just sort of ignore this part. <laughs> um, he talks about, he talks about uh, when he was a little boy and he watched like the, the big tough guys in his town carrying the Shinto shrine. And this is something that they still do, apparently, is that they like literally lift up the shrine with like four with like sticks, you know, like they stick a log underneath like the things that are hanging out over and they put it on their shoulders. And as like the, the young tough guys carry it through town for their, you know, agricultural festivals or whatever. And, uh, hang on, I gotta take another sip of water. Apologize. Um, yeah, so he says, uh, I noticed that they were, like, looking up into the sky. And I seemed to, like, see something that's, like, really, like, uh, you know, intriguing or exciting or whatever. Or, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Um. Meaningful. See something really meaningful up in the sky when they're looking up and going, yeah, bonsai or whatever the fuck they were saying, carrying this thing. And uh, he was a little pussy for most of his life. Then later, after he got all sun and steeled and fucking swole, he was like, I'm doing that. And he does it. And he looks up at the sky and he sees nothing. They're just, uh, but I, you could take that one way. You could say, oh, they just saw nothing. But the way I read it is he was he realized that he didn't need to look up and see something physical. It was that once he was in there, he saw the real 
point of it, which is that he's doing this together with his people and they're doing something that their people do, which is carry a shrine around as silly as it sounds to Westerners like us. I assume you're Westerner, by the way, listening to this. If you are a Japanese person listening to this, um, hi, (laughs) hi, (laughs) uh, yeah, so you could, yeah, so what was I going to say? So, yeah, so he, I, Mishima puts a fine point on it. He says like one of the major failings of our society, our liberal society is this, is this focus on the individual. And um, yeah, that is, I agree with that entirely. Um, I think that is how they institute divide and conquer as they make you think that your individuality trumps uh, what we as a species did for our entire history, millions of years. And it's only 200 years that we've been thinking like this, 200 or 300 max. And that's only the West. It's been less for people in the East. So think about that, the fine point on that for Mishima. The other thing is uh, he sort of talks about the... uh, What I'm trying to say is, so this... this, he, He sort of equates the physical action with the feeling of being in a part, in a part of a group. Um, and, uh, I, I, I would, I would sort of agree with that. And also I think, I think what you're seeing right now is this movement online, like to be fit. And, um, and to me, that's, that's, it's a misguided cry for the collective. That's what I believe personally. It's like a, and and I I think the reason why people are seeing this and in and doing this and engaging in this is because this is a way for neoliberal capitalism to profitize this instinct towards the collective and selling it back to you in the form of a CrossFit, UFC, Joe Rogan, keto, health cookery, seed oils, and listen. All these things individually, I don't got a problem with them. I fucking agree with a lot of it. Um, but I think the, the the point of it is not that they're they're selling you true things. They're selling you real shit, so you don't get to the heart of what the what you're what the reason why you're looking for this, which is that you this primal urge to collectivize, to be self governing by what you identify as. Uh, and then also the other side side effect is that they make a nice fucking healthy profit as well off of you and off of your natural drive towards dignity. And they undignify you. They turn this into something disgusting. They turn this into health influencers. They turn this into yoga pants. They turn this into fucking Joe Rogan. Have you ever done DMT? They turned this into... I Listen, and again, I'm a, a big advocate of the fucking psychedelics. Uh, but they turned this into, like, take MDMA so you're not anti-Semitic. That's a pretty big leap. Wouldn't you say? Just, that's the fucking primary reason you want to take a drug? I'll tell you what drug I ain't gonna take it ever take again. I haven't taken it in a long, long time, but I won't be doing it again, tell you that much. Not that I was a danger of losing that fucking emotion but uh yeah so 
do 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 let's see let's get back to the uh yeah so i have a couple other things to say about sun and steel i just yeah i think that's pretty much it that's what i really wanted to get to that's another great book and i just he again it's just sort of really foreshadows his death and you know the, the final act of his life really well because uh you know he's like he's talking about how he he lifts he lifts to destroy the written word essentially and again it just really says to me it's like he needs so desperately he's used wants to use his physical muscles to bring his real he wants to tear his written word out of the ether and out of the collective unconscious out of the zeitgeist and and or tear himself into the zeitgeist and he does that doesn't he he became inseparable from japanese history japanese literature japanese politics it's all of this stuff is sort of just tinged with him self and it's like he's an anime character he like ripped the fabric of reality or like just a cartoon character i should say i, I mean i say anime because he's japanese but you know just rip the like a cartoon character you rip the fabric of reality using your actual muscles and become part of the fabric of reality now all discourse <laughs> is now affected by your life and again this sort of goes back to i know i mentioned carlisle before but like i'm frankly a firm believer in the great man of history theory that he sort of put forth and I know a lot of people, well, it's debunked, it's silly, but it's like, is it any more debunked than fucking uh, dialectical materialism? <laughs> a lot of people believe in that. You don't, I don't see you fucking poo-pooing them. You just see me. Just hating on me. Little tinfoil me. But uh, yeah, so I, I, I believe in that theory and I, I believe that he uh, maybe without knowing what uh, the name Carlisle or the name Great Men of History theory, he was a believer of that as well. And I think through sheer will, he felt um, that, that he would uh, possibly do that. And that leads me to the next book I read by him, which is The Man or The, the Sailor That Fell From Grace From The Sea With The Sea. Um, and it is sort of a character driven story about, um, three different characters. Primarily it's about a 13 year old boy, um, a sailor in his thirties, his, uh, sorry, a 13 year old boy, his widowed mother, uh, and a sailor who sort of gets into a relationship with her. And I'm I'm not gonna go too too. I really just want to talk about the themes because we'll talk about the sailor first. Because the sailor, he sort of has a similar sensibility. He isn't. I don't believe that he's supposed to be a direct self-insert by Mishima, but he has a certain sensibility, uh, similar sensibility to Mishima in the sense that he is a romantic guy. He sort of. Um, would like to he would like to be someone who is a uh, a historical figure who is a glory who who is given glory like he in, in the main character says uh, uh, that he went his whole life believing that someday he would be a man of renown and that someday glory would call him and he had this sort of like you know again I say German idealist idea that he was like some sort of ubermensch that would 
you know, his time would come that he would finally uh, have his place in history. Uh, And to contrast this directly, there's two other characters. The son, the the boy, I should say, uh, he also is something of a romantic in the sense that he... I wouldn't say he's not a romantic. I would say he is a nihilist who is desperately looking for meaning. Um, and he says, like, you know, nothing means anything. He says, like, no, nothing, me- everything is just a random series of events. Typical fucking. And this, I believe, is um, Misha making comment on, like, the, uh, the leftist uh, student movement. And like their nihilism. I mean, it is nihilistic, and in certain some ways, it is a nihilistic. The entire. I mean, this is again, this is a sun and steel stuff. It's like the entire liberal society we live in is inherently beliefless, other than you know, like the current system we have is good. Um, that's pretty much the only uh, pillar of it. Um, and then anything they do to keep this system that killed the Nazis and stop the world from being gassed if you didn't pass the paper bag test was uh, this so you better keep it going that's pretty much it um what was I getting at so the these these kids particularly the main kid and then also he's sort of like a lackey to another uh creepy nihilist kid and uh, they see themselves as being, like, separate from society. They see fatherhood and the patriarchy. They say father is the worst thing you could be. What I hear is patriarchal Japanese society is the worst thing, and we want to tear it down. Uh, and um, they also, they, they, they like things that are, like, that are, like, inherent to nature and stuff. So... When when this boy meets the the sailor, he's like, "Oh, this guy's connection to something romantic, something like the sea." I like this guy; he seems cool. But then he reveals himself to be a real person to this kid, who is you know like a hopped up an ideology essentially, and he acts unbecoming of what he thought he should be, which is like this symbol of like dispassionate fucking poetry or whatever. I don't know. Uh, and, um, he, uh, hates him. He starts to hate him. And his, his mother, by the way, is like, is like upper class, first of all. So she's well to do. And she's an importer of European and American goods. So listen to this. So she's well to do from, from Mishima's point of view, ruining, importing shit that's ruining Japanese culture. So she is definitely a symbol of uh, a symbol of like that corrupted Japan. And uh, the sailor guy, he's like, you know, he wants so desperately to have meaning and, and like embody something, something important. But he's getting older and he's starting to think, well, I could do that. I could just stay at the sea forever and, you know, keep searching for meaning. And maybe one day fate will call. But also, I, it is comfortable to hang out with this rich lady who's rich from American and European stuff. And uh, so he sort of falls in with her. And I believe that this is 
this is Mishima saying that this is like what Japan, like the well-meaning, romantic, real Japanese guy, guy with Yamato Gokoru, Gokoro, the Japanese heart, a guy who instinctively wants to be a good, you know, wants to be like embody what the character and patriotism is but he's been led astray by affluence uh in the form of patronage from the evil empire of america or europe um and uh and it's funny there's a great very very pointed symbolic scene where they're watching the rising sun they go and watch the sunrise what's the rising sun that's japanese flag they're watching the rising sun as he says we should get, you know, they, he, the, the uh, marriage proposal slash the decision to become married takes place. So they're literally watching the final sunrise as the, you know, the Western version of the, the, you know, the well-meaning Japanese man now settles down with the foreign witch, essentially, um, and uh, that was very pointed for his symbolism for me. But anyway, I don't really want to spoil the ending of this, but I, it's kind of it's it's kind of important. Well, anyway, basically, these young boys, they take issue with the fact that he isn't living up to. Yeah, maybe there's a little bit of Mishima. Maybe the, there's a little comment on on their like nihilism by the fact that there are a comment on the left there with their nihilism. They, they definitely represent the Japanese youth. And uh, so there's definitely an aspect of them that is like nihilist, communist, et cetera, et cetera. But also they're mad at the regular, this guy who represents the regular Japanese giving in to the money. And they decide he must die, essentially. And uh, again, I don't want to ruin the story, but I just think it's, it's, it's just another example, another, another, another example that everything this guy writes... And again, I've only read these things that I've said. Seems like everything this guy writes is about the same thing. And it's about real stuff. It's about life, death, sex, nation. And uh, variations on a theme that, you know, we should return to tradition. Anyway, so... Perhaps we'll do another reading. I don't know. I don't. I don't. I don't want to say that we'll never talk about Mishima again for sure. But let's just wrap up with his um, his uh, ending. Uh, let's see here. I have one more little note I wanted to write here. Oh, so he planned the coup for at least a year. Oh, the Tatanokai. Silly me. So yeah, after he trained with the Japanese military. He uh, was trying to create like a sort of extra constitutional kind of got in with the military slash with the prime minister, which had sort of been like a somewhat reactionary after the whole Anpo thing, like the, the country swung right a little bit in response to it. Because, I mean, look, it's happening now after Greg Floyd riots 2020, it seems like the whole nation sort of at least swinging back to the middle because that was pretty uh, not comfortable for the bourgeoisie there. I mean, it wasn't comfortable for anybody, but, you know. Um, yeah, so uh, he started a group called the Tatanokai, which means Shield Society. I don't know if that's v verbatim or directly what it means, but 
he uh oh and i i definitely so i definitely did i definitely included at least a snippet of it i don't know how much i'm going to end up using in the intro but i definitely put like at least a second of the tatanoka um uh anthem in into the intro but so you probably enjoyed that it's pretty it fucking slaps let's just be honest here let's be fucking let's be fucking honest with how sick a song this is that it sounds like a song from fucking totoro (laughs) anyway um yeah so uh Apparently, in his last meeting with one of his translators, this one's the Goy, uh, he had lunch with him and he said, and I quote, Japan lost its spiritual tradition and materialism infested instead. Japan is under the curse of a green snake now. The green snake bites on Japanese chest. There is no way to escape this this curse. Uh... And um, Stokes, Scott's, Henry Scott Stokes, who is his American friend who related the story, uh, he took it to mean, and I think maybe they had words that were indicated as such, that the green snake he was talking about was U.S. dollar. So I'm pretty sure Mishiba kind of understood the fact that it was, in fact, the dollar or the Federal Reserve System banking in general that was sort of at the heart of this. I mean, it's just so obvious when you, when you have any sort of, even give any sort of analysis to it, like the politics is all after the, the follow the money, follow the money. I was a, I was a, I was a Tatanoka. I was a, I was an author. (laughs) I'm, off the grid. <laughs> uh, yeah, so... Yeah, so I, I... Again, based on the fucking... The Mishmeister For that comment. Um, so yeah, on the last day... Of his life... 25th November... 1970. I'll just read this directly from Wikipedia. Mishima and four members of the Tatanokai who were Masakatsu, Morita, Masahiro Ogawa, Masayoshi Koga, and Hiroa, Hiroyasu Koga. Oh, they must have been brothers. Um, although, by the way, their names would have been Koga Hiroyasu and Koga Masayoshi because they do it opposite. But on fucking gay uh, Wikipedia, they just switched it around to us dumb Americans. Could be Patrick S. Tomlinson and say first name, last name. So yeah, um, they used the pretext to visit the command, Commandant Kanatoshi, Mas- Kanatoshi Mashida of Camp Ichigaya, a military base in central Tokyo and at the headquarters of the Eastern Command of Japan's Self-Defense Forces. Inside, they barricaded the office and tied the Commandant to his chair. Mishima wore a white hachimaki headband with a red Hinomaru circle in the center, which is the meatball the red dot uh bearing the kanji which is the character for to be report reborn seven times to serve the country shichiso shichiso hokoku 
which was a reference to the last words of the Kusunoki Mas... Oh, of... (laughs) Fuck this. I'm not going to keep going with this. A loyalist samurai whose last words were to that effect. With a prepared manifesto and a banner listing their demands, Mishima stepped out onto the balcony to address the soldiers gathered below. His speech was intended to inspire a coup d'etat to restore the power of the emperor. He succeeded only in irritating the soldiers. There's a lot of editorialization. It's probably fucking Nathan saying this. And was heckled with jeers and the noise of helicopters drowning out some parts of his speech. In in his speech, Mishima uh, rebuked the JSDF for their passive acceptance of a constitution that denies their own existence. And shout out, I wonder why, who wrote it? Um, in his speech, Mishima rebuked the JSD. Wait, I said that. In Shadows of Rousam, where has the spirit of the samurai gone? In his final written appeal that Morida and Ogawa scattered copies of from the balcony, Mishima expressed his dissatisfaction with the half-baked nature of the JSDF. It is self-evident that the United States would not be pleased with a true Japanese volunteer army protecting the land of Japan. Also, I I read the... I'm not going to read you the whole... It's kind of lengthy. The full manifesto. And he said some... I mean, he said some fucking Ted-pilled shit in there. Some base shit. And also he says something about, like, how contradictory it was that at at the... At at the Anpo... Treaty uh, on Po, sorry, on Po, um, uh, protests. Uh, the they redefined because it was like a burgeoning thing to have the JSDF, it was like technically not kosher, <laughs> uh, towards the, the, the Americans didn't even want them to have that. So, to get around this, what they said was that the so the express purpose of the JSDF was to defend the constitution and, uh, uh, Mishima points out the fact that the primary thing in the Constitution was they can't have a military. So how could a military, you know, how stupid is that? Well, that's just fucking pill pull. That's what we call that, <laughs> Yukio. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, he committed seppuku and it took a couple, uh, it was very painful, I assume. And uh, the uh, Morita helped him by helping him cut his head off. And um, he then himself killed himself too, Koga. Or sorry, uh, Morita. And I've seen a lot of people say that he was gay with Morita, but uh, there's not really any evidence to that effect um, anywhere but like Nathan, John Nathan's uh, fucking biography of him. And yeah, so I guess we covered it. Um, What can I say? I, I obviously didn't do any justice to uh his prose his uh sort of poetic writing i hope i gave you a kind of good idea about what he thought again we'll never really know for sure because he's dead we can't ask him but uh i don't know i i just see what he did was i I just japan was like on the upswing at the time i think it's patently silly to say and it's very american jingoistic almost I know it's kind of ironic for like a center left of person make this comment or that is, sorry, I should say it's silly to say that someone who would be like leftist or center to be that they're being jingoistic about America. But I mean, again, like the like the starting point of the American moral paradigm is 
World War II, Nazis, Japanese bad, we killed them, therefore we good. So it it's easy for you, with that being your ideology, essentially, it's easy for you to be like, it was ridiculous for Mishima to think that this could work. I don't think it was ridiculous. I think if there was maybe some more, if you had given it some more time, and, you know, actually tried a little harder. You know, we talked about getting fucking boots on the ground and fucking collective action. He only had like a hundred guys in his little clique. You know, if you tried a little harder to make like a, uh, you know, a uh, mass movement or something, I don't know. Of course, they would have killed him. <laughs> they would have said it was. To, <laughs> yeah, who knows? Maybe the CIA killed Mishima. You never know. <laughs> How funny would that be? Some spook just fucking, yeah, I killed Mishima. We had made it look like he. <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, I don't know. Just read his stuff, check it out, and just think about uh, what if it wasn't just Cuckoo Bananas crazy guy? And what if he was totally serious? And what if he was right? Because I think he was, man. And I think, um, Long is the time that we are overdue uh, for turning. I'm not the only person saying that. Uh, this uh, sort of geopolitical order is not uh, healthy for anybody. Literally nobody. Well, you know, very, 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 very small group of people. It's very healthy for. But, um, I don't know, man. Just, uh. Well, again, I always talk about this. I, I'll do plugs and then I'll, I'll, I guess I'll wrap up after that. So uh, I hope you like this episode. Thank you for listening. I went a long time considering it was just me. But I, again, I had a lot to say. And, you know, I kind of, I feel like I did a bad job when I was talking about fucking Sailor uh, who fell from grace from the sea. But check that book out. Don't let my fucking bullshit ruin it for you. But uh, if you want to, if you like this episode... Um, it's not always like this. Usually we have William and it's more funny. Uh, but what was going to say? Uh, so if you want to hear that, uh, www.historyhomos.com or find us wherever podcasts are found. You can also find us on Odyssey, BitChute, Rumble, uh, or Rockfin. That's www.rokfin.com slash historyhomos. And, uh, that's the best place to support the show. Uh, if you get this episode and you get all the back catalog, plus if you are so inclined, you could donate a small fee to us monthly and you get a once weekly bonus episode every Thursday. And we do have, I will be having a guest on this week. Oh, you've already heard it actually. This episode will have already been out. But um, usually it's sort of a like just shoot the shit, not a topic. It's just sort of shooting the shit episode. Uh, and you get all the backlogs of that to do. To, as well um, and uh, yeah also the best way if you say you don't want to donate monthly you want a fucking a subscription you can uh, just make if you want to just drop a you know comment that has a tip attached to it we would love that and also we would appreciate it and also it's a great way to help support the show without having a fucking recurring payment um, also visit us uh, at our telegram chat t.me slash history homos chat and our channel t.me slash history homos uh and you'll meet your future guantanamo bay cellmates and it's a pretty fun place to hang out on the internet and me and william are there pretty often 
And if you want to just ask a question, hit us there. Also, you can email me at historyonwiz at gmail.com. But you can also send an email there with your size and address of t-shirt, and you got a t-shirt, History Almost t-shirt. I can't show it to you right now. This is audio only, but, you know, uh, it's got Uncle Ted on it. Ted K. Um, and uh, also follow us across uh, social media. That's Twitter and Instagram at History Homos Pod. And also follow me at Scott Lister Abrams. And again, so, the, so what do I say at the end of every episode? What do I say? I say die with dignity. And what do you think Mishima felt, at least? Maybe you don't think he died with dignity. But I think the way he looked at the world and the way he viewed life, there couldn't have been anything more dignified. So die with dignity. And last but not least, I gotta say to you, later. Oh, uh-huh.